Aloha, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. Today we're going to be talking about the risks of drinking and driving. We have Rick Collins. He is heading up the Hawaii Alcohol Policy Alliance and wanting to help educate the public and educate all of us about blood alcohol concentration, why the current level of 0.08 may not be enough. Maybe we need to consider lowering lowering the blood alcohol concentration to 0.05. We also have Sergeant Tom Billings, and he was on the DUI task force for many years. He's currently the acting lieutenant of the traffic division right here on Oahu. And we're going to be talking with both gentlemen about what are the risks of drinking and driving and what does impairment look like from the perspective of a police officer and why might we want to consider lowering that that level of blood alcohol. So thank you both of you for joining me on The Body Show today. It's good to be here. Thank Pleasure. you. Thank you for having us. I'd like to first talk with Rick. You're in charge of the Hawaii Alcohol Policy Alliance, and this is a group that really wants to help bring some education to the public about what's going on with blood alcohol concentrations. And I'm curious, what makes you what makes you want to be involved in this cause? And is why do you support the idea of lowering blood alcohol? Yeah, thanks, Kathy. So I think what's really important um, to know is that and most people may not know this, but Alcohol is the third preventable cause of death behind tobacco and um, lack of exercise and a poor diet um, in our nation. And and so this is important that we – this is a public health I think kind of crisis or epidemic that we're facing um, with alcohol use. Um, our alliance started just a few years ago, um, and we're a group of essentially individuals and organizations from across all four counties. And we're really looking at how can we prevent – uh, underage drinking from occurring? How can we prevent uh, adult excessive alcohol use from occurring? And really, um, how can we reduce the alcohol-related harms that are happening um, in our community? The CDC estimates that, that alcohol costs our, our state about a billion dollars a year in alcohol harms. Um, we want to make a difference in that. We want to make sure that we can save lives. A billion dollars a year? Yeah, um, and, and that's about a 10, 10 or so year old study. Um, yeah, that, that's pretty shocking, right, uh, to think that, that it costs nearly a billion dollars a year um, to our state. actually costs us almost $700 um, for every person in our state, um, uh, alcohol costs. So, you know, these, these, these costs ec- economically are high, but also um, from a perspective of lives lost, um, it's high, and we want to make it. We want to make a difference. Uh, we want to uh, come up with solutions that we know uh, are evidence-based, that are supported by science, that are recommended by um, folks like the CDC and World Health Organizations to reduce those harms. One of those, of course, one that you mentioned, being um, lowering the blood alcohol concentration for impaired driving in our state. Well, speaking of impaired driving, Sergeant Tom Billings, I'm curious, you were on the DUI task force for many years, and you were investigating critical collisions and other types of unfortunate accidents. What sort of things did you did you witness when you were working with the task force? Well, being part of the DUI task force, the first thing I noticed were um, individuals who were impaired weren't making the best decisions. 
um, you know, varying levels of impairment led them to believe that they were uh, just a little bit buzzed or they were okay enough to make it home or that they were just a short distance or that um, they were in a rush so they needed to speed a little bit more. And that's what alcohol does is it, it impairs your ability for critical thinking and decision-making skills. Uh, it causes you to have the lack or inability to divide your attention, which is imperative when you drive a vehicle. You have to moderate your speed. You have to pay attention to different things that are arising in the roadway, and especially things that are surprising. You might be okay once in a while on your normal route to and from home, um, but what happens when someone mistakenly steps out in front of your vehicle? Uh, alcohol delays that response that it takes you to get onto the brake and stop your vehicle in a timely manner. And these are the biggest things that cause uh, great injuries and fatalities, unfortunately, on our roadway. Do you find that the majority of the accidents related to alcohol, are they happening sort of in the in the nighttime hours, early morning hours, or can you sometimes even see this in rush hour traffic? You know, the really bad ones happen in the nighttime hour. Um, you know, I can only opine to say that it's like that because uh, people are tired. They've already had a long day of work and they went out. They, um, you know, partook in a, too many drinks and um, now they're on their way home. Uh, and alcohol being a central nervous system depressant, it's causing you to be a little bit more fatigued and more tired. Uh, people are falling asleep as well as um, not being able to pay attention on the roadway. However, we do see some major collisions that happen, um, you know, during the day and in rush hour traffic. One of the more deadly uh, fatal collisions that we had in the most recent years that took the lives of three people and injured many more um, happened around 4 uh, p.m. Um, so we see impaired driving as law enforcement all throughout um, the time of day. Wow. I would always, you know, I would always think that the darkness, the the unfamiliarity with, with other types of things going on could affect somebody's ability to react. But as you mentioned, if alcohol is a CNS depressant, you're going to have delayed reactions. I remember reading quite a few years ago that, you know, if you drive because with, and this is a little different than blood alcohol, but you can have a similar effect if you drive when you're extremely tired, if you haven't slept in days, that that also is driving under impairment. And that's something that uh, people don't recognize could be almost as almost as deadly as any other type of impairment. Now, I'm curious, Rick, you mentioned that blood alcohol is something that, you know, it might get measured if you are pulled over. There are ways that they can detect that. But how much drink? How much drinking do you think actually is required to hit the blood alcohol level of 0.08? And what would be the difference if it was 0.05? Yeah, and that's that's a tough question to answer because it, it there's a lot of variables. Um, Sergeant Billings could probably maybe even answer this better than I can. Um, I'll ask you, <laughs> but both. I would say um, depends on the uh, gender of the person. Uh, depends on your body weight, metabolism. Do you have food in your stomach? Things like that. Um, but what we're talking about here um, in moving to 0.05 is we're not talking about somebody that wants to have, you know, a, a glass of wine or two with dinner or a drink after work. Um, we're talking about somebody who's usually having to drink uh, over a number of hours, a number of, of drinks per hour. Um, and, and, and so even at um, 
one of the reasons we're looking at 0.05 is that from uh, zero to 0.05, there's a significant kind of loss in people's ability to do kind of essential driving tasks like um, steering, like um, you know, tracking moving targets uh, while you're, you know, moving objects while you're driving and things like that. Um, so while it is, um, it varies on the individual, um, the other benefit that we're really looking at here is that um, the deterrence effect that a 0.05 will have. So it's not necessarily about how many drinks is one person having. It's that they're more likely to have less drinks uh, before they get behind a car and drive. And that's going to that's going to get people home. Uh, that could be the difference between somebody arriving home alive or not. Well, that certainly is a huge difference. All right, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and today we're talking about blood alcohol concentration. What is it like when you have too many drinks, and what are some of your options so that you don't get behind the wheel of a car? We'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and today we're talking about drinking and driving, why you just shouldn't do it. We have Rick Collins. He is the project director of the Hawaii Alcohol Policy Alliance, and we also have Sergeant Tom Billens, and he is currently the acting lieutenant of the traffic division and was previously on the DUI task force. Now, Right before the break, we were talking a little bit about how much alcohol is involved in being impaired. And, Rick, you mentioned a couple of things. Depends on your gender. Depends on how much food you've eaten. Depends on a couple of other factors over what time course you've been drinking, your body weight, a couple of different figures that are important. And I'm curious, uh, Sergeant Billens, in your perspective and from your experience of many years, when you hear about people who have who you've pulled over, who may have been having some too many drinks. How many drinks is too many, do you think, in your experience? And I realize it varies person to person. And when when it is too many, what kind of things do you notice? You know, um, one of the more common re- answers I got uh, while pulling somebody over or arresting somebody was, well, I only had two drinks. <laughs> and, uh, you know, two or three drinks. Uh, in my experience, uh, part of our training, uh, when we train the recruits and when we do go through advanced training on how to uh, detect uh, people who are impaired under the influence of alcohol and other drugs that impair your ability to drive a vehicle, what we found is that it's never two drinks. Um, like we mentioned before, it does vary depending on uh, your biological makeup, male or female. Um, it could be related to the weight of it of the individual but one thing that we had uh, is our alcohol workshop and this is where we grab a bunch of volunteers who um, are friends and families of uh, the police officers or just volunteers that want to participate um, that we know and we dose them for, for three hours uh, with alcohol and in that first hour we tell them not to eat And we do this very specifically because we want them to reach a level of intoxication that will be beneficial for the recruits to see. And what I found is it's never two drinks, never three drinks. Even the smallest female 
uh, individual that will probably become the more most impaired uh, quickly uh, is not to drink. Um, you know, they say about 130 to 140 pound individual, one drink an hour, uh, no more than maximum three drinks if you're at dinner or something like that. That would be put you right at the, the legal limit. Um, so we're just trying to change the mindset out there. Um, you know, it should be if you're out there to have a good time and you want to drink and that's your main goal of the evening, then you should plan ahead, right? Um, lowering the BAC 2.05 is not going to capture those who had one or two glasses of wine with their steak dinner, you know, celebrating a birthday or anniversary. So when you say plan ahead, what are some of the options that you think people should consider? In this day and age, we have a lot of choices. Um, one of them being any of the rideshare programs that are out there. And you can download them on your phone or choose an application, and one will be there in a few minutes, available throughout the entire day. Um, designate a driver if you do plan to get intoxicated, and that's your main goal, uh, is to go out and have a great time then you can have somebody um, drop you off and then pick you up, right? Um, I know a lot of places to, um, to drink are in town. A lot of the bars and stuff are in town. If you don't live in that area, maybe get a place or rent a hotel for the evening uh, closer to one of the bars so you, you can uh, use one of those rideshare or taxi programs to get there. Well, and it makes sense. Just plan ahead if you know you're having a party. I know for the last couple of years on New Year's Eve, there's also, I think I've heard about a service where they're like, tipsy toe, we'll take you and your car home. You just give us a hauler and you just won't be driving the car. You'll be sitting in the tow truck and we'll take you home. So there's a couple of different services where they really do recognize this is a particular holiday for which alcohol may be ingested. And here's a way to make it safe for everyone involved. So I certainly think the plan ahead idea is is fantastic. I'm sure there's there's people who don't plan ahead, though. And, you know, what are I'm curious, uh, Sergeant Billings, when you think about the other people around them, if you are out with some friends and you notice that somebody's planning on getting behind the wheel of a car and you don't think they should, what are some of the things that you could do? What is your obligation to try and make sure that they don't wind up injuring themselves or, God forbid, anybody else by driving when they're impaired? That's one large issue with alcohol is the first thing that it affects is our ability to make good judgment calls. So if you're drinking and you're around a few other friends, even if they only had you know one or two drinks, um, they're thinking has sort of been impaired as well. So it takes a lot at that point to speak up to your friend and say, hey, I think you had a little bit too many. Um, you know, stay at my place or uh, I can have somebody pick you up. Um, and alcohol sort of gives us that false sense of confidence that we're okay. And our brain is always telling us, um, is comparing us to how we felt 30 minutes to um, you know, a few minutes prior. So even after having, let's say, uh, five to ten drinks, and then you sort of stop, and the misconception is to go out and uh, eat dinner or eat something and just rest or drink coffee, and that time will dissipate and you won't be that impaired. Um, well, what happens is you do go down in impairment slightly, but then you start to feel like you're completely sober, and that is not the case at all. You're still impaired. You just 
quite maybe a little bit less impaired than you were 30 minutes to an hour ago. Wow, it really does affect your sense of judgment. And if you don't have those facilities, then you're going to think you're doing great. And yet you're not recognizing that that's not the case. Uh, Rick, I'm curious, what are some of the other aspects that you think the Hawaii Alcohol Policy Alliance is trying to focus on? You mentioned it's about blood alcohol level, but you also said underage drinking is another issue as well. And I think we all, when we were young, which for me was, oh, so many years ago, we always have this sense of invincibility when we're young until we hit a certain age. And we realize that wasn't true. But I think, you know, you mentioned underage drinking is another issue. And I think it if you do drink and you're not of appropriate age, then you might be even more likely to think that you're resilient enough to handle it. I suppose that's another problem entirely. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's right, Kathy. And I think one of the other uh, strategies that we've looked at, and it's one of the most strong, the, basically the strongest prevention strategy that we know of is to raise the price of alcohol. And um, in terms of our state, we haven't raised the state tax on alcohol in 23 years. It's, it's nearly a quarter of a century. And so um, we've essentially given the alcohol industry a tax cut uh, every year. Um, what does that how, what does that result to? It results in, in alcohol essentially becoming cheaper for our community over time. Who's price sensitive? Uh, the most price sensitive? Young people, right? And so one of the strategies we've been also working on is looking to increase the state uh, tax to help alcohol begin to pay for itself because of the, the billion dollar or so harms uh, that it causes to our economy and to our community uh, each year. And and so we're, um, we, we tried unsuccessfully this year. Um, we're kind of reassessing what that might look like uh, for this year right now. Um, but that's another uh, strategy to um, reduce consumption and those related harms, particularly around underage drinking. Well, I know that in the smoking industry, when when the tax went up on cigarettes, that did lead to some of my patients coming in saying, look, I just can't afford to keep doing this. I need to cut back. I need to change my habits. And, and it did actually help them to either quit entirely or significantly reduce smoking. So if it does something similar to that, then that may have a beneficial effect for the health of the individual and for everybody else around them as well. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. You're listening to The Body Show. When we come back, we're going to continue our discussion with Rick Collins of the Hawaii Alcohol Policy Alliance and also with Sergeant Tom Billens of the Acting Lieutenant of the Traffic Division and previous member of the DUI Task Force. And we're going to talk about what it's what it, what it's like to get pulled over for a DUI from somebody who does the act himself, from Sergeant Tom Billings. So stay with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and today we're talking about alcohol effects and how does it impair judgment and what might that do and how sometimes you might feel like you could drive home but probably shouldn't. We've been talking with Rick Collins of the Hawaii Alcohol Policy Alliance. He is the project director and also with Sergeant Tom Billens, and he was a former member of the DUI task force, currently the acting lieutenant of the traffic division. And I'm curious, uh, Sergeant Tom... I'm not much of a drinker. 
In fact, I'm usually the designated driver for folks. But uh, if you were a drinker, what would the process be? What do you notice someone doing that required, that results in you pulling them over? Are there some strange behaviors that they have weaving in and out of lanes? Or, or what sort of things make you concerned enough to pull someone over? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the thing that you mentioned before, weaving in and out of the lanes, but uh, when we train the recruits and the other officers, the first thing that we teach them is what we would call vehicle in motion. And what we're teaching the officers is to look at how that person is operating their vehicle. Now, sometimes uh, it's just speed. Uh, sometimes it's difficulty maintaining their proper lane position, um, not signaling properly, so signaling left but turning right, um, making bad judgment or spatial awareness uh, situations in which they are stopping too early for a stop line or uh, disregarding a red light. Uh, All of these are violations that we would see of a typical impaired motorist. So it doesn't have to be that they caused a crash. It could just be that you're observing them on the road and saying, hey, this this doesn't seem normal. So what's the process? What what would what is the process of, of having someone that you notice and identify that looks as though they might not be driving in the best of all circumstances? What, what exactly happens? So, like I said before, when we start with vehicle in motion, it's what, why am I going to pull over this vehicle? Do I have a reasonable suspicion enough to believe that this person uh, has, has committed a traffic violation? Uh, say they have. I've been watching them for a while, and it seems like they're struggling with their lane position. I pull them over. Uh, my job as an officer is to keep the public safe, whether it be from themselves or from other people. So when I come up to the vehicle and I conduct my traffic stop after I introduce myself, I try to ascertain why uh, those things were happening out on the road. Uh, sometimes somebody is uh, just on their phone, or they drop something in, in their lap, or uh, maybe they're rushing to go to work or home. And uh, from then on, I am uh, ascertaining whether or not that person is in the right mindset, my personal contact or interaction with the motorist. I uh, look at how they're grabbing their registration. Uh, are they answering my questions appropriately? Uh, how do they grab their driver's license and hand that over to me? Uh, how is their speech pattern? Are they having difficulty saying certain words? Are are they slurring their speech? Are they not making any sense? Uh, These are things that I look for in an impaired motorist. Uh, Once I determine that they might be impaired or that's the reason why that they were driving that way, then I offer them a field sobriety test. Uh, That is that person's uh, opportunity to show that they're not impaired. Uh, Maybe they work late as a security guard and they're falling asleep I see that their eyes are red and watery. I offer the field sobriety test to them. They come out and they uh, don't exhibit any signs of impairment there. So then they would be released. Uh, An impaired motorist, somebody that I smell maybe an alcohol or something like that on them, um, they'll exhibit some certain signs that we look for in a field sobriety test. Um, And then once they do that, then they get arrested. And unfortunately, they get processed at the main police station. So you mentioned a field sobriety test. What exactly is, I mean, I, I think of what I see on TV where they say, okay, walk in a straight line. What else is included in a field sobriety test? 
of people think that they are unable to pass a field sobriety test even when they're sober, they would say. Um, but the, the thing is, we're not just looking whether or not that person uh, is able to perform the physical task. What we're doing is we're putting the individual in certain scenarios and we're uh, looking at their ability to follow the instructions as well as perform the physical task that we ask them to do. So in a sense, this is a divided attention task and we're judging them on their ability to follow the instructions as well as perform the physical thing. So the one thing that we look for first is um, their eyes. Uh, in their eyes, uh, somebody who's under the influence of a central nervous uh, depressant uh, such as alcohol, will exhibit horizontal gaze nystagmus. And that's when that's why you see the officer move their pen or hand uh, on a side-to-side -side motion in front of the person's face. That's the first thing that we're looking for. Um, in the walk, walking and turning uh, test, we're judging them on their ability to follow and listen to all of the instructions the officer says, as well as walk uh, a straight line, conduct a turn while you know, keeping their hands down at their side and looking down at their feet and counting each step out loud, um, all of these things come into play. The last test is uh, balancing on one foot. Again, another divided attention test in which we ask the individual to follow a series of instructions and then perform all the physical tests. So these are the things that officers are weighing out when they're looking at an individual performing on the test and seeing that if something is impairing their ability to make uh, judgment or follow instructions. Now, is a breathalyzer involved in any of that? Like, does somebody have to, if they really, like, let's just say they can't balance, but they can do everything else, would that be something that could potentially help them? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one of the things that most of our officers will offer is what we call a preliminary alcohol screening, or PAS, for lack of a better word, it is a breath test. Uh, it's a device that you blow into, and uh, the officer is not a machine. Right? They're applying their training and their judgment skills to the person. And if they think the person is impaired, they might offer them this preliminary alcohol screening. Uh, this is that person's last chance, if you will, to uh, be below the legal limit. And if they are, um, maybe the officer then allows them to catch a ride home and they don't get arrested. And so that's one of the ways that we're looking at determining, are they at that level that potentially could cause a problem? So would your would yeah. the standard breathalyzer sort of machines, if we lowered the blood alcohol level to 0 0.05 instead of 0 0.08, would they be able to, to pick that up? Yes, absolutely. All right. Well, it sounds like that particular test would be ideal if someone were to show enough impairment that you needed to pull them over, that that could actually help to determine if they were safe to to continue and have someone pick them up. Obviously, if you pulled them over because they're doing something that is putting their car at risk or themselves at risk, that may not be something that you want them to continue to do and drive home. And, you know, I'm curious, Rick, from the Alcohol Policy Alliance perspective, this is really meant to keep everyone safe. I imagine that the whole goal is to try and make sure that the roads are safe for everybody. Uh, yeah, that's right. And and what this really serves is a general deterrent to all those who drink and drive. It sends a clear message to our community that um, our government's getting tougher on impaired driving and that our community's not going to tolerate impaired drivers. 
if we bring it down to 0.05, we're going to have people drinking just a little bit less. Um, Utah saw an, almost a near 28% drop in fatal car crashes uh, in the 21-month period following the passage of their uh, law that lowered their 0.05. That was in comparison to nationally only a 5.6 reduction in car crashes for that same period. And so um, what that shows us is people are just going to anecdotally uh, think, yeah, that's right. We, pa- we-, we lowered that, the blood alcohol law. Maybe I'm going to drink one or two drinks less. And- All right. Well, if that is the case and they drink less and they stay off the road, that's a win for all of us. I want to thank our guests this evening for being on the show with us here on The Body Show. Thank you to Rick Collins and to Sergeant Tom Billings. If you'd like to hear this show again, you can click on hawaiipublicradio.org. Our engineer is David Chong. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. We'll see you next week right here on The Body Show. 